The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas, because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, where we uncover the truth, one guest at a time. For those of you who dare to seek, Veritas is the place where you shall find. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you're keeping Veritas alive. Tonight, you may have wondered who our mystery guest is. He is known by some, and maybe even by many. But what he's about to share with us tonight, I don't think he has fully disclosed before. That is why we call the show Disclosure from the Inside. It has taken almost a year to get this interview done. Three other times, the interviews had to be cancelled, as the guest was not allowed to proceed with this information and other reasons beyond his control. Apparently, the tide may be turning. You may have heard the term White Hats, which is a group within the world's power structure that is frustrated with how this planet is turning and are doing everything they can to help humanity. You can say tonight's guest, more than a proxy, is the voice of some of these White Hats. As the guest and I will continue to remind you throughout the show, don't believe anything that will be disclosed. Do your own research if you can. This guest is not seeking fame or fortune, and is not selling a book 
or a story. He simply wants to lift the proverbial elephant sitting on his chest. So let's listen with an open mind. Tonight's guest is Barry King. Disclosure from the inside. Barry will be with us shortly. To listen to the complete version of this and all our past and future shows, become a member. For just $7 per month, or $0.20 per day, you will get immediate access to all our inventory of shows, the Manticore Forum, and the Veritas chat room. Don't wait. Just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on subscribe. It only takes a few seconds. Do you want to believe, like everyone else, or do you want to know? Subscribe now and take Veritas with you. And I've added more videos from the 2010 International UFO Congress. I've included a quick hello with Dolores Cannon, who will be on Veritas in the next few weeks. We already have that interview scheduled and confirmed, so this is good news to the many of you who have been requesting Dolores. There's a video with Stan Romanek giving us some updates on his abductions. An interview with Ross Hensworth from the UK show called Now That's Weird. Ross interviewed me as well, and this is my video interview with him. Then I included Alejandro Rojas, the spokesperson for Open Minds Production, which is the company that has taken over the International UFO Congress. He's telling us about all their future plans. There's a video with British police detective Gary Hasseltine and former Urman Larry Warren about the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. Larry will be on Veritas also soon. And of course, a quick chat with Richard Dolan and his views on Veritas. It is such a compliment to hear Richard state his opinion on the show. Then, Ted Lohman and Jim Nichols and their views about disclosure, or actually their views on how disclosure will not originate from the government. Then we have a conversation with Jordan Maxwell about his latest work and projections for 2010. David Sarita and his plans to build a fully functional flying saucer. And the last one for this week, a disclosure project witness, Captain Robert Salas, who was in charge of 10 nuclear warheads at the Malmstrom Air Force Base in 1967, when a UFO hovered over the base and shut down the missile systems. Captain Salas will also be appearing on Veritas soon. I'm uploading these videos to the forum as fast as I can, but it takes time. There are plenty more, so I will continue uploading every week, so check them out. Go to the Manticore Forum and find the thread called 2010 International UFO Congress Videos and Pictures. If you're a member and haven't registered, it only takes a few seconds. Go to VeritasShow.com and click on Forum. Or go directly to Manticore.com and click on the Register button. And now, get ready for Barry King's ultimate and final disclosure. Barry is a man who has gone through a lot. His life has been threatened, his health has been compromised, and even his loved ones have been the target. Barry wants to do what's right for humanity. Disclosure from the inside, the Barry King story. Can you handle the truth? If you can't, stop this audio now. If you do, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas.
you hear right here on the Veritas show is supplied by the independent artists from jamendo.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to our homepage, veritasshow.com, click on the guest, look up the song, and download it. You can even buy the group's CDs, in many cases, right there at jamendo.com. This is Dr. Stephen Greer, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Barry King was a child with great interest in astronomy and all things strange and unexplained. He began research and investigation work into UFOs and aliens in 1966, joining BUFORA, British UFO Research Association, in 1968. He had numerous paranormal and unexplained events and experiences throughout childhood. In 1974, he was one of several witnesses to a very close-range craft and entities. In 1976, he became the victim of a full abduction. In early 1977, he joined the newly formed UFOIN, UFO Investigators Network, set up by FSR Magazine, Flying Saucer Review, and Jenny Randalls, covering the Southeast UK alongside fellow members Andy Collins, Timothy Good, and Omar Fowler. Between 1977 and 1980, many high-profile investigations were published within the pages of FSR that he undertook. Being high-profile, at the time, he found himself constantly contacted by the various media globally, TV and radio, magazines, book publishers, newspapers, and countless journals. In September of 1980, he was featured on BBC TV nationwide concerning the closing down of the world's first 24-7-365 UFO reporting hotline, which he started in February of 1977. In the late 1970s, he ran the UFO photo archives in the UK and supplied the mass media with materials for books, magazines, and TV programs. His expertise within the UFO field lay in photographic and film cases, physical trace cases, and close encounters of all categories. In the summer of 1978, he coordinated a stand at the annual Dagenham Town Show on the theme of scientific ufology, with backing from Columbia Pictures, with display materials from their film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Between 1979 and early 1981, he worked as a security enforcement officer at a secure underground research and development facility in the United Kingdom whose remit included mind control technologies, genetics, and creation of small beings used in MILABs, military abductions. Since the 1980s, he has had close working associations with intelligence agencies, UK and abroad, and the military, mostly by way of a psychological operations unit, whose part remit was crash retrieval and recovery. In 1994, he began to disclose data on the facility, the work carried out there, and at other facilities, the individuals concerned, etc., by way of a series of documents released globally until 2000, when he became one of Dr. Stephen Greer's Disclosure Project witnesses. In the 1990s, a set of video disclosures was made available for the public domain by a filmmaker, Miles Johnston. These were called the Basis Tapes. Further disclosures were made via forums direct for public domain use, such as UFO Casebook, Project Avalon, and our very own Veritas Forum, the Manticore, where disclosures continue to this day. And directly from the United Kingdom, 
let me introduce to you Mr. Barry King. Hello, Barry, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. No, thank you very much. Glad to have you on finally, Barry. Many of us have read some of your revelations at different forums, but it's not the same as hearing you. Also, you have made some revelations in the past few days that I want to also discuss with you as well. But first, even though I read your extensive bio, I want you to take me back to your first experiences to to let the audience know more about you in addition to what I've already read to them. Take us back to your first experiences. Well, do you mean the experiences during childhood with the program um, or when I was actually involved with the facilities? Uh, I can go right back to childhood. Okay, Take us back at uh, childhood. Well, let's go way, way back, okay? Um, it sure. It all, all began when I was around two years old. Um, I was rushed to hospital with double pneumonia, placed in an oxygen tent, and my chances of survival were pretty slim at that time. Uh, during the 50s, uh, pneumonia was uh, a killer disease. It's pretty bad now, but in those days... Uh, a toddler didn't really have much chance. I um, passed away in in the hospital, and the strange thing is, you know, people explain when they have um, these near-death experiences, they see themselves from uh, a high position, looking back down on them. I do recall looking down at this small um, person on the hospital bed with the sheets around the, the um, and over to one side my parents in a distraught state they'd called in uh, a priest a short while because the, the nursing staff said there's very little chance of survival so he was called in for last rites I did die I saw myself up from a position way up on the ceiling and it was just a strange feeling suddenly everything went white and I was back on, on the bed, screaming and crying. I was, I was, I was you know, back alive. I think a lot of people would, you know, they describe walk-ins. I mean, I, I, you know, you can describe it in all manner of ways. You, you're taken over, you're, you're someone else. You're a different, um, being a different personality, whatever. From that moment on, perhaps the Barry King that I am now is different from the Barry King that would have been if I hadn't died that day. I can't say but a couple of years after that, around the age of four or five, I started to be involved in what I now know was the Anvil and Oak Tree Project. It's a, a genetic survey run by the US, the UK, and Canada. Uh, they're looking for certain bloodlines and looking for, in brackets, gifted individuals. Can you repeat so, the name of the project again? Uh, Anvil was the UK um, name for the project, and the American side was called Oak Tree. Okay. So they all formed into Oak Tree uh, later on under just the one banner. But the UK one was Anvil. Um, it really meant from childhood being um, taken regularly to hospitals, uh, clinics, various places, obviously as a young child you, you, you don't really know what they are um, loads and loads of medical tests I mean the, the number of x-rays blood tests all manner of medical procedures over, over the years 
many more than any normal child would, uh, child would go through. Um, we were taken to places where we were given tests, physical and mental tests. Um, it's like um, your abilities that you know you had certain abilities which they were they were they were bringing forth. Um, the number of children involved was quite amazing. When I look back now, I mean, as I say, I'm looking back to childhood and, I, I, and you think, well, there were hundreds of children at the locations I went to. And you'd see the same children time and time again at hospitals for various procedures. You'll see them line up, the same faces, ready for their x-rays, ready for their blood tests and whatever. And this would go over the years. You'd see the same faces. And you, you'd grow up. You know, they'd be your sort of like... Uh, your friends, your other brothers and sisters, yeah, you'd get to know them and you'd discuss things. We'd be taken to certain, let's call them facilities, and there'd be civilians there and there'd be people in uniforms there. Were and, your parents involved? Were your parents well, involved in all well, this? That's, well, that's, that's the very odd thing. I've been asked this so many times over the years, why did my parents allow this? Now, you've got to remember... Uh, 50s, um, it was a very austere time, and I come from a military background. Now, I've, I've had to piece together a lot of this information over the years, because trying to get direct answers from my parents, they'd clam up, even as, as recently as 99, just before my dad passed away, I asked him straight out, you know, what was that all about? And he just cried. He, he couldn't tell me. It was for my best interest and it was the best interest of the country he couldn't say so we left it at that they were obviously coerced into allowing um, these things to be done to me just like all the other hundreds of parents they must have been in exactly the same position they let their children be uh, um, used well there's no other word is it used in this way many did come from military backgrounds we just undergone loads and loads of so many different tests. I mean, it sounds really wacky to a lot of people when you say, well, what we did was this and what we did was that. And they were bringing out those with certain abilities and expanding upon those children's abilities. I mean, we were doing some really silly things, um, reading people's minds, moving things. Um, and obviously the more gifted were kept to one side and they went on to other things, and I got to thinking the other day, well, and there were so many people involved when I was there, and that was just in my area, and this was in, you know, this is based in the whole of the UK, plus is America, and there's Canada, there must be thousands and thousands of these individuals, they were those that survived, of course. Um, but, you know, at one stage, I mean, they, they, they keep you in groups, the young, the youngsters, and and they test the youngsters. You go, you're five, six, seven, eight. You're you're doing all the small things, and and they're, they're working with you. They're progressing. They're, they're um, enhancing your abilities in various ways, and you get rewarded with sweets and candy and and, and bits and pieces. So it it wasn't all bad. I mean, as I said, as a young child in austere UK. You do something, you know you're going to get a reward, a bar of chocolate or, or some, some sweets, some candy. You, you, it, it's, it was a very great thing to us at the time. 
And for those uh, listening, Barry, uh, we have to understand the 50s. We're talking about how the UK was obliterated after World War II. Exactly. And, of yeah. course, scarcity was prevalent at the time. So I can see your point about your parents probably needing some infusion of, 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 mm -hmm. of capital, food for the family, and they had to make certain sacrifices. Am I, am I correct in saying uh, yeah, this? Uh, yes, yes, you're on the right lines. Yeah, they were um, given incentives, plus they were probably coerced in various other ways. As I said, I come sure. from a military background, so... And the dad was involved in certain things when he was in the Royal Engineers uh, in the rear end of uh, World War Two. So certain things went on. I can't even find out what they are to this day. But they, just like every other parent involved at that time, yeah, there was very little money about. It was a very bleak period in time. So, yeah. I dare say money was one incentive, but there was also some sort of um, arm twisting to, to get uh, these children involved in this project. Did it have any kind of a, and I hate to even imply this, but of course we know that after the war, Russia and the United States got a share of their German scientists. In our case, we had uh, Project uh, Operation Paperclip. Paperclip, yeah. Is there any signature here? Because all this, what you're telling me, sounds a little bit to what was transpiring in Germany in the perhaps 30s and 40s. Well, obviously, the UK had access to some of the, 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 the scientists and technicians from Germany. We only had a small slice. You, you had the major slice with paperclip. And right. the Russians, yeah, they sequestered their, their people away. So, yeah, I think... As we were working under, that's the UK and the US, one whole big program, I think it was a shared knowledge type of thing. I mean, the UK was working um, on children here. The US was working with children over in the States, and same same with Canada. Um, this, this, it's still ongoing. Um, they've changed the project name, obviously, but that particular genetic program is ongoing as we speak. Obviously, much more sophisticated today, but uh, yeah, yeah, thousands and thousands of children are being used. So, did you have a normal childhood? And when I say that, I mean, did you go to school? Did you go to uh, secondary school, etc., like oh, most yeah, kids yeah. did? Oh yeah, I was yeah normal schooling like most kids. But come holiday time, I usually found myself being uh, either taken by my parents or more usually someone would come and pick me up in their car and I'd be taken to a hospital or this one particular um, place, which is west of London. It's an old military hospital where most of these um, tests took place. Now, as I said, as a young child, you're going to obey your parents. You, you, you're crying. You're upset. You're anxious. You're very, very nervous. You know what's going to happen to you, but you do what your parents tell you. Strangers show up. You just go with them, you know you've got to do as you're told because that's what you did as a child in those days. You respected authority when your parents said, you, you've got to go, and, and, and off you went. I mean, we were taken by car to this uh, West London facility, and that's where most of the, the testing was done. I mean, we, were, we were there sometimes a day, sometimes two days, and obviously during the summer break, it could be a couple of weeks or so at a time. So, yeah, normal childhood as such, but going through all these weird things played heavily on my mind. I was always the strange one at school, 
you know, I'd, I'd be thinking and worrying about when's the next time I'm going to be taken away and when's this going to happen. And so, yeah, my schoolwork suffered and I was always being picked on because, you know, I'd be the daydreamer. And we, even though we were told most sternly by the people at the hospitals, at the facility, you don't let on, you don't say a word about what you can do and, and, and all the rest of it, and otherwise you'd be in very, very serious trouble. That played heavily on me. Imagine an eight or nine-year-old child being told that, but knowing they can do some strange things, but you can't tell your friends. Or if Give me you, some examples. Uh, Give me some examples of the things that you could do An back example, then. yeah, okay. Um, well, obviously, uh, uh, an amount of bullying goes on at all schools. In, in my time, it was pretty bad. They, they pick on certain children. With me, it was, oh, the lad with glasses. So I was picked on. And I, I, yes. you know, I put up with most of it, but on occasions when the rage built up inside, that's when I started to um, hit back, but not physically, psychically. Uh, on a couple of occasions, I sent a couple of the boys flying across the playground. And boy, was I in trouble when I did that. And of course, everyone's wondering, how the hell did you do that? Well, you know, what happened? And oh, I got into very deep water with that one. It's those, those sorts of things, you, you, you can't control it. When, you, when you're, you're, you're pushed so far, you snap and it just happens. And of course, they're trained us not to let on, not to do that. If you get to that rage state, you've got to bring yourself back down. But yeah, you try telling that to a nine or 10 year old kid who's being bullied and suddenly, bang, you do, you do things. When you say when you say you get in trouble, uh, who do you get in trouble with? Because if I'm at school and this is happening and the person is flying away, who who's the witness to say that you were the one? Ah, well, that that's it. So you, you you've got all the rest of the, the kids in the playground, those who may have witnessed it, and obviously uh, the the poor fools who suddenly find themselves flying backwards onto the onto the pavement in the playground. Teachers come over, what just happened, and, oh, a little bit of a scuffle. Most of the time, obviously, they don't want to admit, well, he's just done this to me, and they can explain it, or it comes, oh, you don't be silly, how could he do that without touching you? And so most of the times right. we, we got through it okay, but on one occasion, yes, it was off to the headmaster's office, he made a phone call, and, yes, two, two gentlemen showed up, and I had to go with those. So in between... Um, the school people and the people who are running the facilities, obviously, you know, they're watching any incident of if this boy does this, if this boy does that, we have to know straight away. So oh, like so that. people in the school, say the principal was aware of uh, your interaction with uh, this quote-unquote project, so they, they were observing you. Well, it was a case of they, they knew there was a, a government involvement, but not to what level. If, if they were just told to, this is an individual that's of interest to the government or is a government property, whatever way you want to term it, keep an eye on them. And if anything happens, that's the number to dial immediately. Uh-huh. Okay, so you were eight, nine years old at the time. Well, at that, at that particular instance, yeah, I, was, I was eight years old, yeah. And it's, as I said, as you get older, obviously, you're a bit more smarter. You, you, you're keeping things to yourself. You know all these things are going on. Uh, you know what's being done to you. You can't say or do very much, but you're a bit a bit more streetwise, so you you tend to control a little bit more. 
uh, eight or nine little kids being bullied, and they're, they're just going to snap, and they can't control it. That was the, that was one of the main things they were trying to sort out with most of us kids. We had these abilities, but we couldn't control them, and that's what they wanted. They wanted more ability, but total control. Now, were you born with these abilities, Barry, or were these abilities taught to you? Um, inbuilt. Yeah, I already had them. That's, that's the strange thing. That's where we go back to um, the age of two. Obviously, something happened. Uh, one Barry King died, and a totally different Barry King came along to replace him. And at the age of four, just two years later, someone somewhere must have known that. And that's the question that I'm, I'm sure people in the audience have. When, let's call it a walk-in, uh, is that the, the term that we can use, the well, walk-in yeah, after? Yeah, even though I'm not quite uh, happy with it, but that, that's the only term we've got available at the moment that would seem to fit, a walk-in as such. How, how would the, how, I don't want to use the word handlers, or the people behind this situation, how would they know that on the second run, on the walk-in, that they needed to monitor you from that moment on? Obviously, uh, a long, complex story between then and later when all the facts were known. But let's just say that because the walk-in was due to, um, I hate to use the word alien because that doesn't quite seem right. It seems a little offensive. Let's call them non-human intelligences were involved with that particular um, experience at the age of two. Now, somewhere between the age of two and the age of four, when I was first picked up for the project, somewhere between the government and the OPI, there, there must have been this um, dialogue that, yeah, this is one of ours, and this is what you now can do. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. I'm just trying to, to, to think with the conventional wisdom, because I'm not, I'm not wearing your shoes, but some people say that at two years old, you just don't remember anything. But in this case, you remembered. Well, this is it. It's, it's very peculiar. Yeah, I remember very vividly something happening, looking down at myself, uh, and I knew, uh, I mean, that, that sounds silly, I know. I knew I was going, but I also knew I was coming back, but a little bit different. And at the age of two, how the hell can you know that? <laughs> Sure. So eight to nine, you're in elementary school at the time. Progress more. What, what happened next? Well, during these, let's call them training periods at that West London place, uh, as I say, you start off with tiny things. That you, you, it's like, um, the cute name they've got is what? Psychokinetics or telekinetics. You're, you're, you're taught to move things. You're taught to um, influence things. Um, see little things at first, um, revolving paper wheels at a distance, turning lights on and off at a distance, uh, stirring up a, a bowl of water, all the silly little things, but it gets heavier and heavier as the more advanced you are, and, and, and they're, they're, they're pruning you, your, your abilities are being um, enhanced as you go along, and at one stage, uh, and moving on just a few years, Still in childhood, I mean, I was 14, so I was nearly the end of my time with the project. It ends at about 15 or 16, depending on the individual. Um, they brought in a tank, 
and, and had that parked in the grounds. Now, there was a great commotion amongst all the kids. You know, obviously, something new is outside. Obviously, you know, well, we've got something to play with, and we spent about half an hour playing on this tank, old World War II. A tank. military tank? Yeah, a military tank, yeah. Okay. And so, of course, we're all excited. We're, we're playing all around this thing for about half an hour or so, and then the, the instructors came over and said, right, all the younger ones, all those uh, seven, eight, nine, ten, uh, small group, uh, hold hands and align this side of the tank and you older children stand on the other side, the opposite side of the tank. What they wanted us to do in the two different groups was to see who could move that tank. Of course, the younger ones um, uh, concentrated and after a while, you know, a couple of the girls started crying, uh, got a bit, a bit upset, but after a few minutes... The thing moved an inch or two. You could hear that the metal started to clank and all the rest of it. We all looked up and, yeah, this, this this thing was about to move. It only moved a couple of inches, but the youngsters moved it. Then they were taken inside, and that was up to us, the older ones. Right, see what we can do. So I think there was seven or eight of us, uh, a mixture of boys and girls. Again, hold hands, concentrate. And every time I did, uh, whether it was the same for the others, I'm not sure, but... You concentrate, your eyes are closed, and you, you go to that place. This is, this is very difficult to explain logically because it sounds so ridiculous. But your mind goes to what I called that place. I was comfortable with that place. So I kept my eyes screwed shut. I went to that place, and you heard the clanking. And, yeah, we opened it, and, and the, the thing was slowly moving across the ground. We'd moved it a few yards. Then the, then the instructors just shouted, that's enough, thank you. And we were we, we rewarded with, uh, with um, a, a decent, decent meal that day. So it wasn't bad. Because it was all for all rewards. How old were you in this instance? In that, I was 14. 14? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you uh, were in high was, school at the time? Uh, it was the last year, yeah, the last year of my schooling, um, I'd already had planned that I was going to go into the military at 15 as a, uh, a, a junior. But so, uh, yeah, that was my last year in schooling. And they cut me off from the project at 15 anyway. Is that uh, what you would consider a graduation from the project when you were 15? I, I think so. Most, most are terminated from the, the, the program at that age because they've achieved a certain level and the instructors were happy with that. One or two continued to 16, but that was pretty rare. Yeah, they were quite happy. What happens after 15? I, I bet that although you, quote-unquote, graduated from the project, you're not really dismissed from the project. Am I right? Oh, we not? Oh, no, no. They're, they're still keeping an eye on you. You're still monitored. You still worry that you may be called any time to go somewhere. I think what they do, they just closely watch you in your life where everything you do from that moment on. And if they need to bring you back in, they will do. But somewhere along the line, they'll get you involved in some project or other. Uh, they'll, get, they'll get you aligned with an agency or the government themselves. They'll find something to keep you um, in tow. So they won't totally let you go on your own devices. So what happened after 15, after you 
I keep using the word graduated, but you know what I mean. After yeah. you finish yeah. with the project, quote unquote. Well, I was hoping my me, me life would be actually my own, but knowing how they worked, I, I knew in the back of my mind, well, I'm, I'm never going to get away from this, but I'll make the best of what I, what I can do. And I had my heart set on joining the military. I wanted to join the army at 15. Uh, as I say, military background, my dad was there, my, my granddad was, was in the forces. So I, I tried to sign up to join, join the, uh, the army, but uh, parents were dead set against that for some reason. So I had to settle with an ordinary civilian job, uh, shipping. But my interest in all things uh, weird and wacky was so strong, I just had to get myself involved in... in that's why I went into the, the subject of, of ufology. got so interested in it, and I, I, I engrossed myself in that. And as I went along the teens, um, strange experiences and... Knowing in the background they were there, they were watching, they knew everything I was doing, they knew everything I was experiencing. And come the 70s, well, that was when they started bringing me, they, they brought me back into the circle by inviting me to certain meetings and giving me little jobs to do. By that time, I was quite high profile in the UFO subject anyway. So they saw that as... Um, the green light to bring me back in and to do one or two little jobs for them. And this is what year now? Uh, that would have began in 77. 77. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you were involved in ufology. Yep. You even had the, as I read uh, in the bio, you even you were responsible for the 24-7-365 UFO reporting hotline. What, what motivated uh, you to, to do that? Well, um... Uh, Jenny Randalls and um, FSR magazine, Flying Saucer Review, had set up an organization called the UFO Investigators Network. What they wanted was the cream of the crop, the best researchers in the UK, and try and bring them under one group and investigate cases that came in. So in the very beginning of 77, they called this meeting between um, the staff of FSR. Uh, Jenny Randalls was handling things on the, on the side of researchers. And this thing was set up. Um, so it was myself, Andy Collins, Tim Good, Omar Fowler. We covered the southeast of the UK. Tim Good. Oh, yeah, Tim Good. The t- Timothy Good. Timothy Good, yep. Yeah, I know Tim very well. Um, so between the four of us, we were to cover the southeast of England and parts of London. So we all had uh, little contacts um, drawn up. Uh, this is the area you're to, to work in. And yeah, uh, uh, we four covered the southeast of England. It was our job to then go out and make as many media contacts as possible, contacts direct with the police, coast guards, the military, you name it, we had to go out and liaise with. And it really took off. That, that, it, it, it was a, a flat year that I remember now, 77. Um, there were so many cases coming to light in 77. I just had to set up this um, hotline, which was my home phone number at the time, 
Um, we were literally uh, working on cases 24-7. We hardly had a break. That's why the hotline was set up. People could contact us direct. It was used mainly by the police. They would get reports, obviously, from the public. And instead of passing them on to the MOD or as well as, it depended on who was on the desk at the time, we would get these reports straight away, hot, if you like. You mentioned the MOD. Was the mm-hmm. MOD UFO desk active at the time, or did that come later? Oh, oh no, they, they had someone, well, yeah, yeah. Um, their UFO desk, um, that's, that's, that's been manned since the 60s, as far as I know, but it's, it's always been on um, a temporary basis. It's not manned full-time. Now, this is something, I mean, I know Nick Pope uh, yes. is a great researcher, uh, I admire the man a great deal, but he makes so much of his three years on the UFO desk, but the problem being is that they were three years temporary. It, it was never a full-time thing on the desk. He must have had other jobs to do, but I digress. Yeah, they certainly would have gone to the MOD, and at that time in the 70s, I can't quite remember without checking with files who would have been responsible for receiving data, but they certainly would have been... Uh, kept in touch by the police. It, it's a standard procedure to uh, contact the MOD, but we managed to get those reports first. So that's why we were out all hours of the day and night, um, all over the country. We weren't just restricted to the southeast. We were often asked by people to go over to Devon, Cornwall, Wales, up into the Midlands. We were travelling hundreds of miles uh, frequently to investigate cases. And all the good cases, the better ones, uh, seem to come our way. Uh, and all the others in the network seem to moan that they were getting these silly little trivial lights in the sky cases, and we were getting abductions, photo cases, physical trace cases, and all that sort of stuff. So um, myself and Andy, um, they nicknamed us the Starsky and Hutch of ufology because (laughs) 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 we were chasing about all over the place and yeah it was a fun time i I really enjoyed the 70s but it was so so busy uh we never got a moment's peace um but i enjoyed it i i I, the buzz of it all and literally i was working 24 7 seven days a week but it didn't affect me I, i had that buzz and that inner place to go to where I knew I could cope easily seven days a week. It's not a problem. I've got that inner strength. I've got those abilities I can rely on. Why, why do you think the 70s, I don't mean to interrupt you, but what what did the 70s have? For example, I, I grew up in, in the 70s, and I remember mm-hmm. the UFO wave where I grew up. Mm-hmm. I never saw one, but it, it was all over the news on a daily basis. And it, the same thing happened in, in the UK, the United States. Why was the 70s such an important decade for ufology? I, I think it was a turning point when more people became aware of, yeah, there's something out there, and there's something real out there, not just imaginary. People's perception um, was helped a great deal in the media were constantly full of uh, reports of the newspapers. It was constantly on the news. Um, programs and documentaries on TV uh, were in abundance. I mean, and then, of course, you had the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which sure. really pushed things along. I mean, public's interest in all things space, UFO, aliens, was at an all-time high. 
That's why in the late 70s, the UK government was actually going to disclose everything it knew, but that was pulled at the last minute because the controllers didn't think it was right. Um, it would have been the perfect time, 77, 78. It would have been the perfect time for disclosure by an official uh, source. And they were gearing up for that, but it was dropped. You mentioned controllers. And mm-hmm. since you were going to be dissecting all the experience yeah. that you've gone through, but you seem to know more than the average person like me about who the controllers are. Can you say who the controllers are? Well, in most people's eyes, the controllers are these faceless individuals they call the Illuminati. Okay, we'll go along that pathway. You've got the, the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers. You've got all that side of things, the CFR. All those, uh, it's a group of individuals with extreme wealth, and with extreme wealth comes extreme power. These yes. people are power mad. And this, they're, they're using doctrines that go back perhaps a couple of hundred years, and they want total control of this planet and everyone on it. But within the ranks of those people, there are those that perhaps have seen some errors and it's not the way to go. And so you've got some infighting within the controllers themselves. You've got two groups, the good and the bad. And that's um, why so many bad things have been delayed so far because the, the White Hats are saying, no, you, no this is not going to happen. Uh, I mean, they want total destruction of the planet or a depopul- depopulation uh, program set up. It's not going to work um, because they've got dissent amongst their own ranks besides other um, factors involved, the OPI. There's certain factions within of planet intelligences that wouldn't allow the uh, controllers to do certain things. So then what happened after th- this incident in the 70s? Uh, your, your investigations with, with, this, uh, with Timothy Good and everybody else, what happens mm-hmm. after that? Well, because we became so high profile, I mean, um, myself and I know Andy was um, going through the, the same sort of thing. Tim Good, but he was starting to get wrapped up in his books anyway. But right. for me and Andy... Um, it was a constant thing of being approached for interviews, radio, TV interviews, uh, magazine, newspaper, book. Uh, literally, we were on call for so many things. And because being so high profile, um, the controllers thought, right, we could use this person. Um, they, they, they do use others before anyone thinks anything. But in my instance... Yeah, they brought me in for a series of meetings that everyone knows you. You're working on, on uh, grassroots ufology. You're a known face. You can be trusted by those you work with. This is what we'd like you to do. And I regret some of the things I did at that time, but not all. I mean, I've been accused by certain individuals of sleeping with the enemy which I thought, okay, in essence, that is correct. But I did it for a reason. Uh, I was asked to infiltrate UFO groups and try and persuade them into a certain way of thinking. Um, I was 
told to assist certain individuals in setting up certain cases, which would then become high profile, but would send the UFO community in a different direction to the direction the UFO community wanted to go in. It's like a psyops type of thing, if you, if you see what I mean. Well, can you see how some people may suggest that you were sleeping with the enemy just because, obviously, and I don't mean to, to sound offensive by me saying or implying this, but don't you think that you may have gone through some type of mind control as a child? Oh, the mind control, uh, yeah, that, that was definitely part and parcel of um, all those procedures we went through as children. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I'd admit to that. That's not a problem at all. Yes, that, that I would admit to. Um, so don't you think don't you think that by having been a I hate to even use the victim of mind control mm-hmm. that some of the thoughts some of the actions that you were involved in or with later in life had something to do with this where you really did not have control over your actions fair point yeah that's that's quite possible I can only counter that with as I got older and again we're going into the 70s when I started to interact with a, a specific um, element of uh, non-human intelligences, working oh. with them, actually, I got to see and know exactly what was done to me. And I was then um, being advised to take different courses of action to yeah, work with certain people, but this is what their agenda really is. Don't go that way. But to them, you are working with them. Um, but you're not really. I mean, as I say, it was a, a case with, like, for example, a meeting with certain individuals in an office in Whitehall uh, one evening in 77. Um, representatives from the UK and the US were there. So they wanted me to do certain things. And in return, they would um, furnish me with full information, uh, um, access to my own file to see what um, had happened to me during childhood and early adulthood. I would get access to my own files. I would, great, yeah, but I can, I can, I can do that. If I, can, I can get something out of this, then it's okay. I don't mind. And I'll get access to different projects. I'll get access to different information. Uh, they waved the carrot in front of my face, and I, 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 yeah, I took it. I thought, yeah, okay, I'll do a few things for you, but you do a few things for me too. So I, w- I was a bit clever in that way, but playing dumb at the same time, because I can, I can do a, a good playing quite dumb and, and stupid. And it seemed to work. I mean, they were feeding me with a lot of information, which I had checked. A lot of it was rubbish, uh, BS. But I was still getting access to other information, which was most helpful and proved, um, um, and proved correct, while doing their silly little jobs for them. So, you know, it really didn't matter too much to me because I had backup from the OPI. You said that you had some interactions with non-human entities. Can mm-hmm. you please elaborate on that? Yeah, well, that all began, oh, we've got to go back to childhood. Um, again, at the age of four, we had a... a a pretty weird experience as a family. Um, so it wasn't just myself on that occasion. A very strange um, black cloud-like thing. I mean, it was 
shapeless. It was, it, you know, it was just a cloud of uh, uh, black smoke type of thing, really. This thing came up the stairs. We were all terrified. I, I recall being shoved behind the sofa and hiding with my, my brothers and sister and my mum, you know, screaming out because this thing came into the room and started to actually come towards us. I was terrified. Um, at the moment the thing came into the room, my dad had come up the stairs and he walked through it and then walked over to the window and just stood there in a daze as this thing was coming towards the rest of us and we're all screaming and and then suddenly before it reached us it just disappeared. But my dad was still looking out the window as if, you know, in a daze, miles and miles away. That was the very first instance of, of something strange going on. Uh, a couple of years later, uh, in in again in, in that living room, I was watching the TV. Now, of course, we had those silly old black and white things in those days. Sure. Um, watching some very boring kids program or whatever it was at that time, but the picture suddenly changed, and the picture on the TV screen uh, looked like. Um, an ordinary street, could have been anywhere in the country, any town, an ordinary street, bright sunshine, and because of the heat, it was shimmering a little bit, and a silver disc came down into the middle of the street. And as small creatures or beings were coming out of the disc, it suddenly reverted back to the child's program. And I just stood there. I, I couldn't be moved away from the TV for, for some time. I, the mum mentions... Oh, yeah, you were just mesmerized that whatever you were watching on that. It must have been a very fascinating kids' program. And I, I, huh. I just couldn't say what I was watching. That was the second time. After that... They didn't see it. They, 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 your family did not see it. Only you saw that. Only I saw that on that particular okay. day. Yeah. Um, another instance. Oh, right. At the uh, age of... I would have been 10. The next instance would have been... Um, that would have been a daylight sighting of a black disc. Uh, we were in the kids' playground opposite uh, a parent's home. Uh, we were playing on the swings and roundabouts and things. And on this particular piece of equipment, it was a, um, we called it the spider. It was just a, a roundabout made of tubular metal on a, on, on a central um, pivot, yeah? If you can try and picture it, it's like a wheel with the spokes on a on a central stand, and we we you know you you just go on it in, and just push yourself round, and so this this round goes faster and faster and faster. It, sure. We just we just call it the spider. Um, I found that instead of running around on the outside with it and getting out of breath to push it faster, I could go underneath, put my back against the pivot put my feet up and I could kick against the spokes and I could really get this wheel going really fast and I was too clever that day my sister fell off and damaged her knee on the concrete so she went home crying her eyes out my sister was two years older than me um, my brothers went with her so I was left there feeling very guilty knowing I'm going to get really cold off when I go back home I'm really going uh -huh. to get cold off by my parents yeah so I thought, I'll just hang around here for a while. And so I'm just, just laying there, just looking up at the sky. And I noticed in the bright blue, um, a small black circle. Didn't think too much of it at the time. 
but after a few seconds, that small black circle got bigger and bigger and bigger, and I just couldn't take my eyes off it. When it got to the size, literally, that took all my vision, that's when I remember no more. And sometime later, because it was not blue skies anymore, it clouded over and the light was going, I stick my hands in my trouser pockets, head down, walking home, knowing I'm going to get a real telling off on the parents. But, but that was it on that day. Uh, I had nightmares in that house because we'd, we'd not long moved into that house. Um, I had nightmares of there was something in the living room and I would tell my parents, I, you know, I was so terrified of the night time of going down into that front room and I would, I would see something. I would, in the nightmares, I would see small hooded beings walking around the, the table that was in the middle of the front room. And of course, they just laugh it off. Yeah, I mean, just a children's nightmare. Don't worry about it. It will, it will, it will cease. But on one particular occasion, I had the nightmare, and for some reason, I've got to be brave about this. Uh, I've got to get this sorted out. I said, I'm only, I'm only ten, but I'm, I'm going to go down and sort this out. So I went down the stairs very gingerly, very carefully, up to the, the door of the front room, hand on the doorknob. I turned it very, very slowly opened the door slowly, and what met my gaze was several small beings uh, hooded uh, standing around the table. And as one pulls the hood away, that's where that ends. That's, uh, and I never had the nightmares anymore. Now, can you describe them? They're small hooded. Were they the typical gr- small grace? Well, just as this one's about to pull the hood, because the hoods are over the, the faces completely, so it's just the blackness. You couldn't see any, any faces at all, except when this one started to pull the, the hood off its head, and that's when you could just see the top part of the head, and that's, that's, when, I, that's when it all finished. It all blanked out. But, yeah, it was a, a grey skull-like part that I just saw, and then that was it, like, weird. <laughs> so what happened later in life? Let's go back again to during the times when you were investigating. Mm-hmm. Who actually contacted you by the secret projects? How um, were you contacted by the secret projects? Well, that's always something, I mean, this is where Andy can actually verify. I, I'd get telephone calls, I mean, okay, not an uncommon thing when you've got the hotline going, you're going to get telephone calls all manner of the day and night. But I would get telephone calls and I'd leave a, a quick message by the phone from my parents to take messages in my absence, but I would be gone sometimes for hours, sometimes for days. Now this um, really worried Andy and, uh, and also because he passed information back up to Jimmy Randalls that, again... Barry King's gone off on one of his um, mystery visits somewhere. It was during those times that, yeah, I'd be called in um, to see the instructors or those in the offices. And to be quite honest, that's where a lot of the blank periods are. Uh, I know some things, but every time I try and, and remember in detail, each You're and blocked. every occasion is blocked. Yeah, I can't remember at all. I mean, I've tried regression over the years. I mean, you know, handers have suggested it. I've tried this, I've tried that. We get to certain areas and it just gets blocked. 
it won't go any further. You think that the mind control portion had something to do with it, just blocking those memories? Uh, that would be the logical explanation, yeah. I mean, there's, there's areas, uh, it, well, throughout my life, really, that I've got no access to, and they've tried uh, assisted, chemically assisted, deep regression. It just, won't, it just won't work. There's no access. Do you suspect that you're, and you say you come from a military family, your grandfather, mm -hmm. your father, you, do you think that your father, and perhaps even your grandfather and before, had been involved in these types of projects? Well, that is the $64,000 question. Um, I used to have long, very enjoyable chats with my, with my granddad, and he'd tell me how it was, because uh, he was with the artillery in the First World War. And, uh, yeah, we, 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 we could talk for hours on, you know, what he actually had to go through. And, yeah, I, I, I try and edge towards that side of things, but He was as stubborn as the rest of us. And, you know, you'd get to a certain point when he'd just look me in the eye and say, no, sorry, boy, I can't tell you anymore. And it would be left. And same with my dad. He would hint at certain things, but he just would not follow through with as much detail as he, I'm sure he, he was dying to tell me, but just couldn't. So he left little hints and clues. I mean, he told me as much as he could, Um, he was with the Royal Engineers in Germany at the end of the war, but there was a, a certain um, operation his unit were called upon, and it was top secret, hush-hush, couldn't say anything at all, and he was actually injured on that um, particular operation. And because it was so hush-hush and top secret, being injured, but they couldn't get him back, to the UK straight away because of the nature of what they were doing. So he physically suffered out there in, in Germany at that time. Um, and, and, and that injury, obviously, uh, has been with him for the rest of his life. But he, he couldn't tell me what happened. I, whatever way I tried to get it out of him, uh, no, he, he wouldn't budge. He'd say, as far as, 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 that, as, far as you're concerned, He was just injured within this operation. He couldn't say what the operation was. He couldn't say anything at all. But the injury was sustained at that time, and they couldn't get him back to the UK because it would have compromised the operation at the time. Oh, he never shared with you. You said that he passed away, right? Yeah, he passed away in January of 99, and we were there in the December. Now, we knew um, he was due for another operation, Uh, in a couple of weeks' time, you know, from the time we were there. And that's when we we sat down and we had a, a father and son talk on so many bits and pieces because we all knew he, he, he would not survive that, that operation in a couple of weeks' time. So it was a sort of clearing time, if you like. And that's when I quietly approached him about bad, all the things I'd been through during childhood and all these other bits and pieces since, What was it all about? Why did, you know, I'm pleading, why did you and mum put me through this? Why did you do this? Why did you allow that? As I said, he just broke down in tears. He, 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 just, he just looked me in the, in the eye and he just, he just couldn't tell me. And we, we, we just had this silent agreement that, okay, you'll go to meet your maker. Hopefully we'll meet up sometime in the future and you know, by then we'll all know what happened anyway. But, you know, we just, we hugged. I knew I wouldn't see him again alive. And, right. Yeah, 
yeah, two weeks later, he he, he just couldn't survive the the uh, operation, so he, he passed away. Now, going back to the let's call them off planet intelligences, if we can, mm-hmm. uh, the ones you've been interacting with, are these intelligences of human or non-human origin? Uh, non-human. Yeah, they. Um, I'm still uh, interacting with them as of now. They are a race that goes back a very, very long time. Um, they've been interacting with this planet thousands and thousands of years. Some people, well, uh, we had this habit of trying to label everything. I mean, you look on the internet and everyone, oh, they're this name and they're, they're a Nephilim, they're this, they're that, they're this, the Anunnaki, whatever. They, you know, we, we as a species must keep labeling everything. This particular um, off-planet intelligence, yeah, they do have a name, but to try and actually say their 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 name would be very difficult. It's, it's emotionally based. Um, I'm sounding so ridiculous. You, you you could not actually write their name. You couldn't speak their name. It's an emotional. Um, how can I phrase this? Well, Telepathic. Know, well, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, their name is there, but it's not something like uh, Jones or something, you know, something you can speak about and something you can and, and write. It's, it's on a higher level. Um, it's, a, it's the best I can say. Everyone's going to say, well, are they the Nephilim? Are they the Anunnaki? It's just, well, no, we're just, we're just labeling things that we've, we've come up with those names in the first place, you know. Right. Um, we, we just have to pigeonhole and label everything. Uh, I said the best thing we could call them would be the Watchers, because that's basically what they've been doing for, for thousands of years. They're watching over us. Well, yeah. that was the next part of my question, and we have to take our one and only intermission. And folks, we're just warming up. <laughs> There's so much that Barry is going to share with us. I have a list of things that I want to ask him. And before I let you go on the break, Barry, mm-hmm. you can give me the answer on the other side. Is it possible that these beings are descendants of ancient human civilizations that perhaps left the planet and their DNA and physiology changed due to the rough conditions in space? And you'll get the answer on the other side. Barry, okay. do you have a website or a way for people uh, to get in touch with you, aside from you being part of the Manticore family? Well, I used to have a website, but that, used, that, that was hacked so badly um, some years back I closed it down well no they closed it down and I had no uh, I, I just didn't want to reopen it because every time I tried to do so they'd shut it down anyway so unfortunately um, there's not a direct link they can come to not at the moment but we are well they can contact um, me via the, the Manticore forum obviously yeah They can come to our website and to our our forum, The Manticore, and we can go from there. Folks, don't go anywhere. This is such a fascinating show, and wait until you hear the rest. This is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to The Veritas Show. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
This is Timothy Good, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.